We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shabbat Shalom. We have entered the month of Av and also the Shabbat of Parashat Matot Maseh, a double parasha. Matot means staffs, as in big sticks. A staff is a sign of tribal authority and also potentially a weapon. And this parasha is full of reflections on authority and violence. And as it moves through its various narratives, the parasha demonstrates how small acts of authorized violence can lead to big ones. The parasha opens with an explanation of the practice of nidarim, or vows. This was an Israelite practice that was open to lay people, not only clergy. The making and keeping of a vow, such as a vow to become a Nazarite and not cut your hair. I like that one. (laughs) Or Hannah's vow to give Samuel to the temple was a kind of offering practice. It was a way of showing devotion to God and often of showing gratitude for some personal abundance or miraculous experience one had received. However, this avowing practice was not equally open to everyone. Women living in their father's house or married women needed tacit approval from their fathers or husbands to make a vow. And if their male relative objected, the vow was annulled. The Torah says, if a woman makes a vow to yud heh vav or takes an oath imposing an obligation on herself while still in her father's household as a young woman, and her father learns of her vow or her self-imposed obligation and offers no objection, all of her vows shall stand. But if her father restrains her on the day he finds out, none of her vows or self-imposed obligations shall stand. And yud heh vav will forgive her since her father restrained her. A husband could also annul vows, and he could, on his wedding day, annul a vow that had been approved by the woman's father years before. Interestingly, the law splits the authority between the human patriarch and the divine one. The woman can make the vow to God, and she can keep it, provided her father or husband doesn't object, nor is he allowed to annul her vow later on if he becomes angry with her or with the consequences of her vow he must annul it in the day that he hears it or forever hold his peace. There are some checks on his power to abrogate this vow. I have in my head the voice of some imaginary benign patriarch somewhere arguing that this is for the woman's benefit. I mean, we wouldn't want her to vow to jump in the Hudson or something. Or maybe the practice is for his and his society's benefit. I mean, what if she vows to stop making breakfast or go on a 30-day pilgrimage? or stop being a wife and mother at all. You can see how restrictions on the power to make vows are part of a wider system of laws that keep women in a particular subordinate role. 
I parenthetically should add that the rabbis later found the practice of making vows so problematic, they thought no one of any gender should do it at all, which I suppose is one way to resolve the inequality. I want to acknowledge that the position of women in Israelite society had many facets. We know about a variety of prophetesses and at least one female judge. We know the story of how the daughters of Tzalaf had inherited their father's land. So this is a complex picture. And there is clearly oppression that women as a group face under these laws. And this law is one aspect of that reality. Since a woman who wants to keep her vow, as Rabbi Jacqueline Koch Ellison points out, must make that vow silently or run the risk of it being annulled. I would like to tell you, really, you have no idea how much I would like to tell you, that as the parsha goes on, the arc of history bends toward justice and things get a little better. I'm sorry to say, really, that that isn't what happens. In fact, in this particular parasha, the situation of women and everyone worsens as the parsha goes on. As I was preparing for this sermon, I really kept looking through the parsha for something inspiring, and it just kept on going. The very next story in the parasha is the, the story of an Israelite battle with the Midianites. And by battle, I mean massacre. The battle is a vengeance for the events at Baal Peor when the Midianites invite the Israelites to worship the god of Baal Peor. I might add that the Israelites do this perfectly voluntarily, but God wants vengeance on the Midianites. And so the Israelite warriors head into battle. They take all their priests and their sacred things with them. And they go into battle against the Midianites, even though, I remind us, their guide and Moses' teacher and father-in-law, Jethro, is a Midianite. The Israelites are victorious. They kill the king of Midian, and they kill Balaam the prophet. Remember the guy with the talking donkey? Yeah, they kill him. And then they go significantly beyond what we would consider the rules of war. The Israelite warriors take the women and children captive. Moses then demands they kill any women who have been sexually active because they too were involved in the incident in Baal Peor in seducing the Israelite men, the story says. They then proceed to do away with all of those women, all of the boys, while they are prisoners. And the girl, children, and young women, who are not yet sexually active, they take as slaves. And let's be honest, this is not mercy. This is sex trafficking. The women are listed later as part of a list of spoils of war. That includes sheep, cattle, and donkeys. So we might have the hope that, as it says in Deuteronomy, these enslaved women will be taken as wives um, rather than simply enslaved. But even if that's the case, which is not clear, they will still have to marry and serve the men who are responsible for the deaths of their families. This is not my favorite Dvar Torah to be giving you. I find this shocking and not uplifting. And I imagine many of you agree. And I wouldn't be speaking about it on Shabbat except for two things. The first thing is that whenever Jews get to this parasha, we tend to avoid this material. I would bet there are people in this room who have never heard this story. And there is a problem with always avoiding 
the most painful parts of your own story, which is that you begin to feel that you are entitled to avoid the most painful parts of your own story. And right now I feel that there's too much that we're avoiding. There's so much that we would all like to avoid. The meltdown of our planet, the plight of refugees and victims of war, the perils of sex trafficking, which is still rampant in our world, and lots more. It is our human instinct, and sometimes even our human need to avoid painful things. But using this parasha, I would like to practice with you doing something else. I would like to practice doing with you something braver than that. We need to talk about the hard things. Even the things that implicate us or our ancestors. We can't avoid that. We can't avoid these hard things because if we avoid them, we can't change them. So how do we go about bringing an attitude of change to a story that's in our Holy Torah? As Kabbalah scholar Nathaniel Berman, whom some of you know, has noted in an unpublished essay I just got to read, there are times when we need to abrogate the immoral aspects of the Torah in order to safeguard the holiness of the whole. Berman quotes Reish Lakish in the Talmud, who says that there are times when the nullification of Torah is its foundation. Berman brilliantly calls verses like the genocide of the Midianites klepotic verses, like satanic verses. In the Kabbalah, the klepot, or husks, or shells, are matters scattered throughout creation that hide the divine sparks. A klepotic verse, therefore, is a verse that is an obstacle to holiness, rather than a vehicle of it. Sometimes Torah stories express our worst impulses and not our best ones. If we wanted to speak about this on a mythic level, we might even say that rather than expressing cosmic love, these verses express an equally cosmic anger that we need to work through and heal. However hard it may be, we need to consider the possibility that we need to separate the sparks from the klipot whenever we relate to Torah or law in general. This is an ongoing process of sorting what is husk from what is spark. And there's a second reason I feel that we have to look at this parsha tonight without creating a fuzzy gray hole of denial at the center of it because this parsha teaches us something important and relevant for our time, which is that small acts of violence, like annulling your wife's vow because it's inconvenient, can be connected to much larger acts of violence, like enslaving people you've captured during war or killing them. And I'm not here to engage the argument about whether our ancestors thousands of years ago can be held to our own moral standards. That's a complex problem, and I'm not going to solve it tonight. But what I do want to do is point out how a relatively nonviolent law at the beginning of our parsha and the extreme violence that occurs right after it are related. And in rabbinic tradition, we call this smichut parshiot, 
This is a common interpretive strategy, that when two, two sections of the Torah are next to one another, we say that they're related. And these passages are related. Because once you start to dehumanize women, there's not necessarily a stopping point. And in fact, once you dehumanize people of any gender, or people of color, or refugees, or queer people, or disabled people, or poor people, uh, or Jews, or Muslims, or children, or foreigners, or anyone else, there is not necessarily a stopping point. And things that we think are not, are not great, but not that bad, can lead to things that are really bad. So we have to act against oppression in all the levels that we see it. Because as we were all taught in school, an object in motion remains in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. And it is our job not to let oppression remain in motion and to bring healing where we can. Let's take a deep breath. This is hard. Now I want to go back to our parsha and reconsider our relationship with our spiritual ancestors who gave us this text, who gifted us this story. And I don't know how or if they experienced these events exactly as written, but this is the story that we got. And honestly, it's a lovely summer night, and I could have hoped for something different, like justice, justice shall you pursue. <laughs> or a nice dance in a vineyard. But let's face it, my descendants, if I am lucky enough to have any, will not like all of my story either. And I don't want to let my disappointment in this story harm that ongoing relationship with my ancestors, which is so precious to me, and I know to so many of you. So what can we do? I once saw Rabbi Rami Shapiro deal with this story uh, by inviting the congregation to say Kaddish for the Midianites as a way of acknowledging what happened to them. At storytelling, now known as Lab Shul, they narrated this parsha from the perspective of a captured Midianite woman. And those are brave and powerful ways of dealing with this story. I want to do something a little bit different that engages both Midianites and Israelites. And I want to invite you to, to do it with me. If you've been here before, you're used to a little meditation around here. So that's what we're going to try. I want to engage on a very simple level a practice known as ancestral healing, which members of my Kohenet Hebrew priestess community and many others have been engaging. I particularly want to mention Teashir. Daniel Four, Yael Shonzeit, Elsa Asher, and other practitioners of ancestral healing. And this practice essentially says that we can, on some spirit level, ask our ancestors to heal through us. And who knows, maybe we can ask the Torah to heal through us, too. So I would like to invite us to drop into a deeper place, however you do that. And if you don't do that, just feel free to support and hang out. But if you feel available to it. I want to invite each of us who feels called to right now to offer our own silent intention or prayer or thought 
directed toward the Midianites in this story, wishing them healing and peace and justice in whatever way is possible. And then I want to invite each of us who feels able to do the same for the Israelites in this story to right now wish them healing, peace, justice, reconciliation. You don't need to channel anyone. We don't have bandwidth for that. Just project a gentle hope that all of the people who may have lived this story find healing from their wounds or from their violence or both to the extent that this is possible. And if you want to expand your prayer to their descendants, go ahead and do that. And if you want to expand it to all who have lived stories like this, go ahead and do that. And if you want to expand that prayer to all who are currently living a story like this, go ahead and do that. And if you want to expand that prayer to the Israelite women who didn't get to make the vows they wanted, do that. And let's pray also that we make and are able to keep our vows to bring justice to our stories and to the world. And as we all look around the room to see that we have partners in this work, Let's pray for this healing of our ancestors and us in song.